everyone, and welcome to another edition of Monday Musings with RC, where I tell you about things going on in the Black and Brown communities, and I give you stories from Black and Brown people's perspectives. Today, I have a wonderful guest with me, Dr. Carrie Lockhart. Welcome, Dr. Lockhart. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. So you are a very special guest to me because we went to undergrad together. Yes, and we actually did. work in the same building. This I is know. wild. It's so nice. wild. Serendipitous. So on the show today, um, for those just tuning in, the title of our show is A Physician's Breast Cancer Survivor Story. So Dr. Lockhart is going to tell her story of breast cancer survivor survival and I'll give you more detailed information on her background. Dr. Carrie M. Lockhart is a native of Chicago, Illinois, born and raised on the west side near Humboldt Park. She attended high school at Illinois Math and Science Academy in Aurora. She went on to attend Northwestern University, graduating with a BA in psychology. Then she received her doctorate from the university, from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and did her residency at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood. Since graduating from residency, she has practiced in community health centers on both the west and south sides of the city. And her time at federally qualified health centers has allowed her opportunity to serve in communities whose experiences with accessing healthcare had at times been kindred to her own experiences as a young child. Thank you, thank you for coming on the show today, Dr. Lockhart. So I want to hear more about your experiences as a young child. I actually worked at an FQHC for a while. And for those who don't know, a federally qualified health center, um, the whole point is that the government gives monies to those health centers because they are situated within communities that are often underserved. Mm -hmm. um, so people are low income, um, often minorities, and so oftentimes paying for this medical care is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at times um, getting physicians who may want a higher income to work in those areas may be uh, mm -hmm. an issue as well. So. Yeah. I love working in an FQHC world, and I like to hear about what led you there. What yeah. were your experiences as a child that led you to FQHC? Yeah, um, so I have asthma, and um, it's, it's always been pretty bad. Um, and as a child, it was severe, um, really just because we didn't know. My mom has pretty severe asthma. I have a sister with, um, you know, moderate asthma. And so I would spend, you know, these multiple times going to the hospital. And uh, there's one that stands out in my mind when I was nine. Um, and I was probably like eight when I told my mom I wanted to be a, a baby doctor is what I told her. Um, I had no idea what that meant. I just knew that I spent a lot of time in the hospital. Um, and when I got into the hospital and had to be admitted there, the people who were there took care of me. Um, and took care of me well. And that often was um, what's now called Stroger, but to me, it's, it was Cook County mm -hmm. Hospital. Um, and so I remember a, a distinct time where I was really sick. I had been to the emergency room three times in one day. Oh um, and the first, yeah, the first hospital I went to, we'd gone there twice. It was my home hospital where my pediatrician was on staff and um, they sent me home twice. And I remember being, uh, my father had taken me the second time, I, both times, my mom stayed home. 
And I remember us getting to the parking lot and I still remember this moment of him like almost like carrying me, he had his arm around me and he was like carrying me, lifting me up. I was at his side because I, I couldn't breathe by the time we got to the parking lot. Um, I remember getting home and my mom being so frustrated, like, you know, why did you let them bring her home? And he's right. like, they, I remember this kind of, you know, brief back and forth of like, they said that she was okay. I told them, you know, and my grandmother, we live in this family building where my mom is still there. Um, and my grandmother was just, you know, everyone's like hysterical. And they're just like, my mom, my grandmother's like, just take her to Cook County. You know, just don't go back there. Um, mm -hmm. And this is how sick I was. My great grandmother had oxygen at home. We should have called 911. We stopped um, on the first floor at her house and I had to use her oxygen. Oh, I wow. put that in my nose and then we drove in the car um, to Cook County. Um, oh, and my they, yeah, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's like, what were we thinking? We should have just right. called 911. Um, and so it was, you know, I was admitted to the ICU and uh, was there for a few days. And, um, you know, that was honestly probably the last time I was very sick in the hospital. I think I remember my pediatrician finding out and coming there. It was back then before HIPAA. And so he came mm -hmm. and checked on me. So you could just walk in the hospital right. and take right. every patient anywhere. But I think um, then I don't know if something changed in him, perhaps. But I just felt like there was much more information given to my family about how to take care of my asthma then. And before then, we did it, we just didn't have it. And so we was, I was spending a lot of time back and forth. I will never forget reading um, Becoming and Michelle Obama says something, I always forget the quote, but something about kids knowing like, like when they're like treated differently or when they're like not given enough. I can't, I'm butchering the quote totally, but mm -hmm. they know the feeling long before they have the words to identify it. Right. And so I think I've recognized that as I got, you know, was just kind of going through this experience of being in the hospital a lot and, um, or having to go to the hospital a lot in the emergency rooms and things like that. And so when I, I went to medical school, if, you, if I could find my personal statement now, I always said I was coming back to my community to provide quality care and have, you know, make sure that people like me had access to care. Um, and that's what I've spent my career doing, making sure that that happened. So um, it was, it was those experiences. So. I'm sorry you had to go through all of that to get yeah. to where you are, right, right. Um, but I am glad that you are a doctor now caring for others. Yeah. And now you said that when you were younger, you said you wanted to be a baby doctor. I'm assuming yeah. you didn't know the difference between OB-GYN versus pediatrician. Right, right. Baby doctor. Yeah. Um, but so that everybody knows Dr. Lockhart is a pediatrician yes. as opposed to an OB-GYN. Yes, yes. So this month, um, I've had people on the show that talked a lot about domestic violence awareness. October is also about um, raising awareness of the prevalence of breast cancer. And so I did invite you on, not only from a physician's um, perspective, I know that you're a pediatrician, but mostly um, as a survivor. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're comfortable, mm -hmm. would you share your story yeah. with everybody? Absolutely. Um, so I'll uh, try to keep it super brief. Um, but yeah, um, I am pretty open about my uh, breast cancer um, experience. Um, I was in my early 30s. And um, it was very shocking. Um, I am, besides my asthma, fairly healthy. I don't have a lot of, um, you know, major unhealthy lifestyle things. So like, for me to have um, cancer was really shocking. So um, I have been away. I just graduated from medical school 
and I had gone, I traveled, um, and I incidentally, it was the most random thing. I couldn't sleep and found a lump. Um, and it was not like a lump, like what we would think of. Like, you know, when people talked about a lump before, I always imagined like this, like lump, lumpy area, but it, it was like this firmness that just felt very strange. Um, when I did my breast exam, having said that I had been doing them fairly regularly, um, and kind of fell off a little bit, um, but had done them enough that I recognized immediately that this was not something that had been there before. Um, and it was concerning enough that I reached out to my mother from, I was, um, out of the country and I reached out to her and said, can you make an appointment? Cause I found something and, and I'd had like fibroadenomas, which is like a non-concerning kind of benign thing in the breast before. So I thinking maybe it's that I was not super worried, but saw my, I got back, saw my OB-GYN and she's like, mm, that's probably nothing, but let's have you see a breast surgeon. That was in June end of May, beginning of June. No, it was like mid-June. Um, and the timing's important because, so that was mid-June. I was in between medical school and residency. Um, for those who don't know, residency is when you do your training. So you're a physician, but you're training to be your specialty. And so I would be starting that about two weeks later. So I was uninsured briefly. And so I asked her, is it dangerous? You know, do I need to go right away or can I wait a couple weeks? And she's like, oh, sure, you can wait a couple weeks, but, you know, make sure you schedule it. I started residency and when I tell you like you are, it's like you just, it's like being fired out of a cannon. You start and you just get going. I forgot about the lump, completely forgot about it. Oh, wow. So that was June in November of the same year. So that year was uh, 2010. I was um, establishing care with a primary care doctor who's still my doctor now. Um, and during that exam, she felt the lump. and. For a moment, I didn't even remember. She was like, is this new? I'm like, yeah. And it took me a second. I was like, oh, no. And so from there, she sent me to the breast surgeon. And things just moved very rapidly after that. I, and I never quite understood if, they, if it moved fast because they were worried or if it moved fast because I was a resident and my schedule was really restricted. Um, but I got in with the breast surgeon. And then she looked at in the office with an ultrasound. And she's like, this you know, doesn't look like a cyst. So we need to do more imaging. And so I got like a dedicated imaging in the radiology department about a week later. And at that visit is when I got nervous because on that same day, they were like, we want to do a mammogram. And so if you've ever been to uh, one of the major hospitals here in Chicago, they have a really big booming um, radiology and um, mammography department. Um, and they were amazing, but because they're so busy, they can't just like slide you right in. So I was sitting there waiting and thinking a lot. So did the mammogram, mammogram inconclusive. So they told me at that point they wanted to do a biopsy. By this time, we're pushing up to the end of December. I first had seen my PCP the end of November. They went to do a biopsy. So got the biopsy on December 30th of 2010. Um, and I got a call January 3rd that I was, that I had breast cancer. Okay. Now, the breast cancer that I had was if you have to have a breast cancer, it's, it's the best one to have. It's stage zero, it's DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, which means that the cancer cells are inside and um, confined to the duct. So that may, makes it harder for them to, to get out um, and, and move away. Um, but I had um, what was called stage zero, but they grade cancers as well. Um, and the grade tells you how um, abnormal the cells look. And the, the lower the grade, the less abnormal they look, the higher the grade. 
um, and I'm a pediatrician. I do, don't do anything related to oncology. Um, there's either four or five grades. I'm not, I think it's five, I think. Um, mine was grade three. So they look very abnormal, but um, it had not spread. The staging is how far it spread beyond. When you're stage four, you have very distant spread of cancer. And so mine was, hadn't spread, but it looked atyp- very abnormal. So um, it was uh, in the duct, so we could do a lumpectomy. Lumpectomy is just when they take out the lump. Um, I had to get two of those, though, because there's a certain amount of space between the tumor um, that has to be where they feel comfortable that there's no residual cancer in that extra tissue that's left. So after they, they take it to the lab and look at it, and there wasn't enough space between the end of the tissue and normal tissue. So they had to do another lumpectomy. So had two surgeries. Now, mind you, this is all going on in my first year of residency. I had just gotten through half the year. Um, you finally kind of feel like you at least know how to work the computer at this point. So you feel like you can actually start learning some real medicine. Um, and then January 3rd is when I get this news. So, um, I spent that half of my, um, intern year, the second half really like taking care of that. So, um, I got, had the surgery and, um, because of the, they look at, um, several things. Um, for me, they looked at what's called tumor markers. So on each cancer, uh, for breast cancer, at least at the time, this was a while ago, they told me that there are certain genetics that they look at not tumor markers, genetics. And so if you have genetics that say that your cancer is more likely to be um, aggressive, then you need chemo or certain types of um, treatment. And if not, then you don't. So mine were what they call favorable. So I did not need to get chemo. Um, but I, um, it was recommended that I get radiation for six weeks um, and take tamoxifen because my cancer had um, estrogen receptors on it. And tamoxifen is an anti-estrogen which will bind to that receptor and then kill off the cancer cell. So to, I do the lumpectomy. We start radiation shortly thereafter, um, after everything's kind of healed up. Um, and then I do that for six weeks and my skin gets, I mean, like it looked burned. Mm. And remember, I'm like 30, I'm, you know, like a little bit beyond 30. I just turned 34. Um, so this, I got diagnosed at 33 and I just turned 34. And so I was struggling because my skin just didn't look like my skin. I could not imagine it looking back to normal. Um, and so it was really devastating for me. It was very tough. And so, I went through that and then, um, started tamoxifen shortly somewhere in between in the middle of doing radiation. Tamoxifen is meant to be for five years research, you know, everything generally that we do in medicine, we try to do what's called evidence-based. So the evidence shows that if you do it for five years, it decreases your cancer risk. At least for me, it would decrease it back to baseline. So there's a one in eight chance for any woman without, you know, just at baseline that you will get cancer in your lifetime. Um, And so it would decrease me back to that. Well, after a year and a half on the tamoxifen, um, I started to have increase in my liver enzymes. Those are the numbers that follow your liver and make sure that it's looking okay, which my oncologists did because it um, can cause a little bump in your liver enzymes, but mine were like in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we were checking them uh, monthly. Yeah, I was meeting with her monthly. And then it w- went up double in like a two days and it was just getting oh, higher wow. and higher. So we had to stop it. So I didn't get to finish the tamoxifen. Um, And so that was in what, uh, so a year and a half. So in 2012-ish, something like that. Um, 
I got really depressed. Um, you know, I was, it was really, really hard for me because all I kept thinking was like, I don't do anything. Like, I don't really have any vices. I, my vice is peanut butter. Um, that's, no that's smoking, no excessive drinking, no, no, you know, no. recreational drugs that were illegal. None of, that. None of it. You know, I'm like, I don't do anything. And so not that any of people who do those things right. deserve that. Right. They're things that increase your risk. And I didn't have any of those obvious things. Um, but I had some of the other things that many people may not know. So things that, that can increase your risk for breast cancer, um, starting your menstrual cycle before age 12 is an increased risk. Your lo the, longest, the longer you're exposed to estrogen um, can increase your risk. So if you start your menstrual cycle before age 12, there's a slight bump. Um, and so I don't want anybody to hear any of these things and like now you're worried because you started your period at nine. Just these are some small things that, you know, for me, I think it was just a combination of things. Um, if you don't have any children, when you're pregnant, estrogen isn't a hormone that's around. The hormone for pregnancy is something called progesterone, which can be on, on cancer cells, but we find that not having children is a, is a risk factor because you have no periods for those nine months. You know, when you're pregnant nine months, you have no estrogen that you have some, but it's not the highest. So I have no children. If you um, start your, um, if you go into menopause after 55, that's another risk factor. Because again, you're having longer periods where you're having estrogen around in your life. Um, and then some of the things that are modifiable, you know, having a sedentary lifestyle, not working out, not being active, um, being overweight or obese can affect your cancer risk. Um, smoking is seen to affect that, but actually more than smoking, it seems like alcohol. So how much alcohol you drink. So um, there was recently a study that came out that said zero alcohol for women. But when you look down at the fine details, like, you know, one, you know, drink a day, which, you know, most many people probably don't do. So I didn't have really any of those risk factors. We don't really know, you know, exactly um, the, the modifiable ones. I don't have really any of those. That's why I got it. But um, you know, probably I ended up start. that was, you know, I started seeing a, a therapist at that time because I was extremely depressed. Um, and now, you know, I'm almost 10 years this summer. It'll be 10 years in remission. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm on the other side. Um, so. That's great to hear. Yeah. That's great. Now, there are, that's a lot. I yeah. Just, like yeah. listening to it, I'm yeah. just Okay, let me, let me. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to just take a breath, you know. Right, right. Um, so when you were saying, I know some people may wonder about um, chemotherapy versus radiation. Yes. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I think that a lot of times we hear these terms and because they're so common in language around cancer, we, and it's um, an uncomfortable subject for many people, they, didn't wanna, they don't want to ask the questions. So I do want to ask you if you could explain the difference to everybody. But before you do, I think your mic is like rubbing on your collar because I was hearing a little scratchy noise Sorry there. Sorry is no that problem. better? Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. And I talk um, with my hands too, so that oh, no problem. all like rope. <laughs> that is much clearer. Um, so could you just tell everybody the difference between chemo? Yeah. So in kind of just layman's terms, uh, radiation is um, uh, a beam, beam of light. That, not like like a, a beam that goes to the it's targeted to the cancer cells you can't see it so when you get an x-ray that's a it's a type of radiation and so this is high dose radiation 
that goes into the cancer cell and, and it kills the cancer cell. Um, I don't know if it's, this is for everyone, but in general, it's about six weeks. It's every day for those six weeks. It's, um, they generally try to do it at the same time. And they, it's very exact. And so uh, you get tattoos put on you. Um, I have a, it's like a, a dot, a tiny tattoo here and on each side so that every time you go, you're lined up. So it's a um, high dose of uh, that radi- you know, radiation. That, um, so you, again, you don't see it, but it's, it's targeting the cancer cell and like um, burning it, so to speak. And so that's why your skin over time, repeated doses of that gets really burned and irritated chemotherapy on the other hand is a medicine it can be an injection it can be a pill um, that goes in and they work various different ways there's there are many types um, some affect um, cancer cells are um, repli- basically they uh, multiply and divide very quickly um, we have some cells in our body that do that naturally our skin cells are like types of cells that divide quickly um, but cancer cells are faster than that. And so some of these medicines target that part of uh, the cancer's DNA to prevent it from dividing so quickly. Um, and so that's what it's doing. It's getting into the, the um, uh, chemotherapy gets into like the cellular part of um, many of the cancer cells to try to stop its um, activity from the root, you know, from the base of it. And there's some, again, some other, you know, ways that chemotherapy works, um, but that's the thing, you know, main thing about it. And so um, because of that, that's why you can see the hair cells re- um, turn over very quickly. So that's why you can see people losing their hair with certain chemo. Not all chemo makes you lose your hair, but there are certain specific ones that do. Um, there's so- different side effects for each one. Um, but the ultimate goal is to, you know, get this, you know, foreign can't you know thing out of your body this cancer right. so that you can survive and and right. and you know overcome it so and i hope that helps that yes well hopefully that did help everybody yeah. out there um and i'm sure that that's a tough decision for people to choose to have chemotherapy or radiation as opposed to saying if you've already removed the cancer cells then i'll just like wait and, and, and see if they replicate. So when you're saying you didn't have to have chemo, you did have to have radiation, um, but if they took the tumor out, then are they doing radiation for the surrounding area? So this is the thing about cancer. I mean, cancer is so, uh, tr- I mean, it's, it's smart. And so even once it gets so, it's multiplied so much, it gets big enough that you can potentially see it. Right. And see it maybe not with your eye, but with a microscope mm-hmm. or an x-ray. Um, but those smaller particles of cancer can can get out of the, the duct, for example, for me or mm-hmm. into your bloodstream. And so if it does that, the idea is to especially if the genetics on your tumor show that this is an aggressive cancer that has a tendency to do that, um, your risk of that happening is high, then the chemo is to prevent that from happening. Um, And if you are at a stage that's later, then you have already demonstrated that your cancer has has moved beyond the local area um, Mm -hmm. where it started. And so the chemo is to prevent further spread and then to try to 
to kill that tumor right. if you can. So even taking it out, that just removes that isolated area. It does not deal with the microscopic tumors that, um, you know, part, parts of the tumor that can be um, going to other sites to try to develop um, or um, with, you know, potentially residual areas that we can't see um, yet. Because right. you know, when it starts off, it's, it's small, too small even, you know, potentially to be picked up. So that's what the chemo and the radiation are for. Okay. For those of you who are just tuning in, I'm R.C. Riley, and I have a special guest with me, Dr. Carrie Lockhart, who is sharing her breast cancer survivor story with us. Um, so I'm going to ask you a few additional questions here now. So you said that this summer will be 10 years in remission. Mm -hmm. And one of my questions is, how did your journey um, kind of change you or did it change you in any way? How did it impact you? Um, well, I mean, it, it had a huge impact on who I am and how I would say show up in the world now. Um, okay. And sometimes I forget that and have to be reminded. But um, I think if there's uh, anything that I can take from having had to go through that, I never would have chosen to... Um, do it this way, you know, by getting cancer. But I think you do really develop this recognition that um, like life is really a, it's a, a gift. It's a blessing to be here. Um, and I've lost young women who I've become friends with um, subsequent to my experience with cancer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember feeling lonely because I didn't know any young black women who ha have been diagnosed. And so um, I had a network um, through, it was uh, at the time it was the why me organization, but they are now no longer um, active. Um, but it was still different because I didn't have anyone who was like me. And so having that, having cancer allowed me to be that support for some women, but they, they didn't make it. And so I'm always reminded that you did. And so it would be a disservice to them um, to not show up in your life in a way that's really meaningful. So um, it, it has helped me to be really um, deliberate about what I choose to do from work, from relationships, from friendships, everything. Um, and, you know, in, in the past, I, I would have stuck something out to, you know, to be a do-gooder. Um, and now I, I, I want to do good, but I want to do good for, for me first. Mm -hmm. And so um, I always think about that. And I, I tell my mom often, you know, if, if uh, you know, hopefully it doesn't ever, you know, if, if my, you know, things ever returned um, and it were the end of the road, I would want people to say that I lived my life fully, you know, um, and there would no one, you know, people would never say like, you know, Carrie didn't uh, do that thing she wanted to do or um, live authentically or take a risk. You know, I'm, I'm risk averse um, in a lot of ways, but um, I just always think about what could have been. And so if something comes up and it's, in my spirit that I, I want to do it or I want to see, you know, see it or uh, say it, you know, I do it because, you know, cancer robs so many people of their dreams and their opportunity. And 
I got another one. Um, I've had various scares along the way. Um, one as recent as last December. And it's always just another reminder of like, you don't get infinite opportunities. And so you, you take advantage of it. And so I, I was not living that way before. So I, I tried to, I tried to. So it sounds like being a survivor has really empowered you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I said, I would never have chosen that if there were a shelf of like, how do you want to be empowered? I would never, you know, Um, but I can certainly see um, the blessing in it because I I think, you know, we take it for granted that we'll always be healthy. We'll always, you know, be able to do the things that we say we're going to do, but never get around to it. Um, And so, I mean, I mean, if you grew up in a family like I did, you know, just simple things like, you know, you don't quit a job without another one lined up, you know, you don't do that. And I, I did it, you know, because I was like, this is not serving me. This is not healthy for me. Um, I don't recommend it. (laughs) I don't regret it. I don't regret it because I know that in the end, what is most important is that I'm healthy. And if something is making me not healthy, um, I have to, you know, and so um, really cancer gave me that. And I'm not like being a, you know, like hallmark when I say that, like it really, it really did right. help me make, a, put things in better perspective and, and really yeah, empower me to just try to grab onto life and live it. Nice. And when you say healthy, it sounds like you mean like holistically, so yes. not just Absolutely. in a physical way, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually healthy yep. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I am, you know, I've run into people who are like, so do you, are you vegan now? No, I'm not. Like, that's not, for me, that's not where mm-hmm. healthy lives. Right, um, right. Healthy is not eating fast food every day, um, mm-hmm. but it's also not choosing something that other people say is mm-hmm. what you got to do. Um, right. It's having some harmony amongst those things. And, and that's a, uh, yeah, like, you know, mentally, spiritually, all those things that, you know, I want to be on, on uh, the same accord. And um, some days they aren't, you know, um, but I'm certainly always aware of, you know, that I'm working towards that. And uh, right. yeah, absolutely. Like healthily, healthy all around. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you have a great support system with your mom. Did you yeah. do the whole time have a solid support system yeah. from family and friends? I did. You know, my mom, um, if she, you know, is watching, she'll, uh, she'll laugh. My mom is a, is a kind of a crybaby, and I got it honest. Um, and so I won't, I won't lie. I was worried because my mom can be kind of like, uh, you know, like me. And so when I tell you she was the pillar of strength, and like we talked about it years later, and she's like, yeah, that's because I would, I would, you know, hold it together for you. But she, then her sisters, you know, my aunts who were also amazing would then like rally around her so she could have that space. Um, and so I know we have a big family. It's a, uh, I went to school with a lot of people in your family. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Forgot about that. So yeah. Um, so she was, she was great. My sisters were, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're really close. Like, I mean, my mom's the oldest of 12. Mm-hmm. And so, um, to have, you know, all of them, I, I 
wasn't, you know, people are much more like, you know, vocal about things now, which I'm, I am too. You guys see, if you, you know, you, you see me on Facebook. I think at the time Facebook wasn't used as much like that. So I get a message here, there, my memories and get to see, you know, how much support I had in my family and friends. Right. And so um, it, it meant uh, the world, you know, at the time. So, yeah. And we, we both know people who are in different stages right now mm -hmm. of um, dealing with breast cancer. Yeah. And um, I guess one of my questions for you is when you were saying that you didn't see any other people who look like you, um, now, 10 years in remission, are you finding now that you see more black yeah. and brown people who are surviving and, and you know, yeah. going through their own journey? Definitely. Um... Uh, you know, on the one hand, it makes me very sad to see so many um, black people, mostly women, but occasionally a few men, you know, um, being diagnosed with breast cancer, um, because, you know, there's some reason for that. And, um, you know, my mind wants to understand why, you know, right. um, I, you know, that's the doctor in me, but that's also like, you know, us, like, you know, we want to know, like, what is happening, you know, because they're black and brown people mm -hmm. um and so um so on the one hand it's like why um and then there's the this other side of you know you recognize like that that's a source of you know network you know they can be support and network right. for a network for each other um i think what is most startling is to see more young women um being diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, black women. There's some studies that have, that have shown that black women are more likely to be diagnosed with more aggressive forms of breast cancer. Um, and it's out of my scope. So I don't know why, um, but I certainly know that it's something that we need to figure out why, because um, if it's more aggressive, that means survival is going to be right. lower, you know, so one of my questions is, do you think that in our communities, we do things like practice, um, like the care that we need to ahead of time for prevention, like doing the exams or, or that wouldn't necessarily prevent, but allow you to yeah. cause early detection. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know yeah. I worked in um, a while ago, I was in, in research and I worked at one of the hospitals in Chicago doing clinical research in Hispanic community. And one of my responsibilities was to teach women how to do self-examinations. So I felt like all day I had these little models, different size, different shape breasts and showing everybody. And I have to be honest with you that I was doing examinations all the time with myself during that time. And I would say, even now I probably have not done that consistently. You know, and I always say do it around the time of your cycle and that sort of thing. So you think that would trigger you to right, right. do this simple, you know, detection measure. Um, but even though I, I worked on a research study for a year and a half, so on and so forth, and I was educated about how to do exam, I don't even do them as regularly as I should. And I just had my first mammogram last year. <coughs> and so I... Um, told myself that I need to make sure that I not only get a mammogram every year, but also at least every month, right? Do a do breast self-examination. Yeah. So well, I, I know you're like, you're like, uh-uh, <laughs> you, no, I'm taking No, actually, <laughs> no, I wish, so. But I mean, why do you think that is? I don't, I don't know why. I, think, I, I know we take, in general, we take 
we take those things for granted that there'll be a tomorrow for us to do that. Like, oh, yeah. tomorrow I'll do this exam or this won't happen to me. And you don't say it out loud, but I think that we just assume that because we're doing other things to stay healthy and alert and aware that that will somehow, you know, keep us from cancer. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's like these, these two, two parts of it. Yeah. There's certainly this aspect and, and I find the younger folks are more like, I'm good. You know, I'm eating clean. I, you know, mm-hmm. and they just feel like they're, that it won't happen. Right. Um, and certainly those things matter. We know that, you know, healthy diet, physical activity, but it doesn't eliminate, you know, it doesn't bring anything down to zero because there's environmental things, there's genetic things, you know, and so um, the, the overwhelming majority of people I encounter, you know, not um, professionally, but like personally and talking with people, it's fear. People Mm -hmm. are afraid to know that they have the C word. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I try to impress upon, you know, the people I tell is early detection really does save lives. Um, You know, I feel like, uh, you know, October gets very like clouded and, you know, this pink haze and people forget like the seriousness of it. And so I'm glad you're doing this, you know, talk today because I really want women to hear me today that, um, early detection will save your life. Um, I was terrified when they called me and told me that I had cancer. And I remember saying to my sister, I don't want to die. But imagine if I had not been doing a self breast exam, I was 33 at the time. Um, Potentially maybe a mammogram at 35, but likely the earliest I would have gotten a mammogram was 40. Mm -hmm. So that would have been seven years from now. Right. From then. Right. You know, and so, uh, and the, the tumor I have often doesn't have a lump, you know, so that's what I, at the time, that's what I read and and learned that it it often doesn't have a lump because it's in the duct. So it was pretty large. So I, I will be very forthcoming though, and tell you that since I have been diagnosed and treated, it is tough for me to do a self breast exam. I get very scared that I'm going to find something. Mm-hmm. Um, I do them, but I don't do them every month. Mm-hmm. I get scanned um, images every six months. Okay. So I, I do have some comfort there because I'm getting scanned pretty regularly. Right. Um, but that's not most people. And that's not right. really what we recommend. You know, right. the mammogram is radiation as well. It's low level, right. but it's radiation. So it's not, you know, a substitute for the self breast right. exam. Um, so I know it's, uh, some people are just uncomfortable with mm-hmm. touching their body right. as well, too. Yeah. Which you yeah. just, you know, keep practicing and you get really comfortable, you know, starting, um, I think in the shower is a good place to Ideally, we like um, you to do it when you're laying down your hand behind your head and you use the pads of your three fingers to kind of start up in the um, under armpit and because and you'll feel like the soft tissue there, like where it's soft and all the way down and then like around the breast and the bullseye until you get to the center. Um, 
and set it up. Keep that again because that's very important. Yeah. So, so you, hand, if you're laying down, hand behind your head, and you know, so that you're kind of nice and flat, and then you start under your arm because breast tissue goes all the way up there, and you mm -hmm. kind of paint the back and forth. Um, and then you come all the way down and then you go in a bullseye around your breast. If you have large breasts, then, you know, you may have to then use your other hand. You can't have your hand behind your arm and you go in a circle, like in a bullseye all the way till you get to the middle. Um, and, you know, setting an alarm, you know, they have um, alarms to remind you of when your cycle is coming. You can, you know, put an alarm you know, in your phone, you know, so you just know it's supposed to be two weeks out because that's when your breast tissue is kind of the quietest to about two weeks after your period, two weeks before, which ultimately ends up being about the same. Um, if you do it while you're on your period, things can be really lumpy. Mm -hmm. And many times people will say, I don't know what I'm feeling for what what you're feeling. So you get really comfortable with what's normal. And then one day something will be like, wait a second, that was not there before. And it seems like weird that you would ever know that, but you do, you do it so much. It's like looking at your skin, your face in the mirror every day. And then something pops up. You're like, wait a second, that was not there yesterday. Right. Um, and so, That's um, a good analogy. I like that. Yeah. 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 So the more you do it, the more familiar you come and we know, early detection is what is key. And that's with many of the cancers that we can, you know, screen for. I know this is not, you know, about colon cancer, but colon cancer, but, that's one of the ones it's so there's yes. not well, the majority. I think recently when I saw the statistic, 90% of people who get colon cancer can survive it. And, and that's, I think the thing that is so disheartening when you go to funerals for people yeah. who are like, our age yeah and you yeah. think this could have been prevented and so yeah. we're so i like you said fear i think it is we don't want to hear the bad news yeah. and then we're not prepared for the bad news so i think that if we remind ourselves about our support system yes. um if there were a worst case scenario do you have a support system and i think if your answer is yes even if you only have one person yeah. and i think that's where we have to step out yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, you know, I think uh, I always tell people if someone had, you know, given me the scenario, what would you do if you like got cancer in residency? I would, my response before would have been like, oh, I curl up in the ball and, and quit. I did it. But you're here and you did. I didn't. I you don't know, know how strong we can be until we're in the that's situation. The thing. That's the thing. And so we, we think overthink it and I say this I can say this as an overthinker so for you guys out there who are fearful and like I don't want to get bad news like we really overcall how um, horrible it's going to be how tough it'll be to get through mm -hmm. um, and just like so many tough things that have come before you get the information and you rise to it um, but you can't face it until you go and and see um, your doctor. Now, I do know that for some people listening, there may be an insurance issue. Um, and there are certainly um, um, different fundraisers and uh, different organizations who are funding free mammograms. So don't not get a mammogram because you don't have insurance. Mm -hmm. That is not a reason to not get a mammogram. Um, I'll tr try to get some of those to you, um, so, um, you know, RC, so that if people want to reach out, they can have some resources. But I really want us to 
uh, take control of our health. Those of us who can, I, you know, I'm very much aware that, you know, black and brown people contend with so many challenges, challenges day to day. Um, and it's a privilege to have right now. It's a privilege. It shouldn't be to have health care, to be able to choose your doctor, to be able to call and go. Um, I had strep throat this past week and I literally, my throat was hurting. I scheduled an appointment, got in and saw a doctor within hours, really. I scheduled it at like midnight, saw someone at 10 a.m. And that's a privilege. Um, so I don't want people also to, to be thinking like, oh, she's a doctor. She has no idea what my life is like. Um, so I'm, I'm understanding of that. Um, if there are things that, you know, you need and we, we can help, there is a network of physicians out here, black, white, brown, you know, whatever, you know, who are really committed to taking care of um, our community. And so find us. Um, I can direct you to them. Um, I'm not, I don't take care of adults, but um, I want, I want our community to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, I want black and brown communities to be healthy. I want us to have the resources that we need and, um, Definitely. you know, help connect people to that. And one of my things is really making sure that people who are LGBTQ as well, who yes. Yes. may feel uncomfortable going to the doctor anyway now, yes, um, especially if there's someone transitioning that feels uncomfortable, um, mm -hmm. do, that's why that self-care is so important, so important. Um, do the breast self-examinations, yes. um, wherever you are in, in the stage of transitioning, still do the examinations yes. and um, mm -hmm. try to find a doctor that you feel comfortable with. That's the key. That's the key. I see, you know, different posts on, on Facebook about, um, you know, if your doctor won't give you this test, do this. What I would say, if you have the option, if you have to do those kind of things with your doctor, then that's not the doctor for you. Right. You want a doctor where you can communicate and you right. can say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this plan and you guys can right. talk about it. Exactly. Um, any family who comes to me, I, especially if they're new to me, I tell them just fair warning, I tend to run behind. And that's because sometimes that's going to be the conversation that you're heading out the door and, and the family will say, you know, Dr. Lockhart, I don't, I don't feel comfortable or I didn't understand that. Can you ask? And they feel comfortable saying that. And I'm right. going to sit back down and do that. Right. 20 minutes right. may have come and gone, right. but I want people to leave and feel like they got the information they needed, right. that they knew that I cared and listened and didn't force something down their throat because I'm the doctor and you're the patient. Right. And I don't think most doctors are doing that. I think right. sometimes there's just not a no recognition time. or patients don't feel comfortable to say that because we haven't always created that environment. And so I think if you have, you're seeing someone and you're not feeling comfortable that you trust their plan, even if it's the right thing, but you don't even feel comfortable to ask questions about it. That's not the person for you. That's a good point. Um, but offer it first, give them a chance to, you know. Right. And I will post um, names of organizations um, that are friendly to black and brown communities and LGBTQ yes. communities so that people have those resources. Yes. We have covered a lot of ground and I still have a thousand questions. So maybe I can bring you on another time. Absolutely. Here. Um, um, but the hour is running late and I don't want to keep you. I know you are still trying to rest your throat <laughs> right now. So I want you to take care of you um, so you can continue to take care of our children out there. And I thank you for all the work that you do. I really thank you 
for these nuggets that you've given us today. Just even demonstrating and going over how to do breast self-examinations, explaining um, the key to early detection, um, and sharing your story with us. I appreciate that so much. And I really think that this show is going to help me to be more mindful myself um, to on a regular basis, check myself out. I am not a person who's afraid to touch my body. So I should yeah. not, well, that, I shouldn't put that off. Um, yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you oh, so you're much. Welcome. I really appreciate that. Thank to you those for of you, No problem. Those of you who have tuned in today, this has been such a wonderful time speaking with Dr. Carrie Lockhart. Um, and the topic was a physician's breast cancer survivor story. Um, we have a lot of information that we're gonna drop on the post, so please check out resources. Um, um, I'll try to give links on how to do breast self-examination in case you didn't quite catch that as well. Um, resources for people who may need free or reduced cost mammograms, um, as well as local clinics and um, places that are LGBTQIA friendly. Um, so a lot of information all to raise awareness of how to have early detection so that we can save our lives, save our breasts, save our dignity, and enjoy full lives. Yes. So thank you all for joining us today. Thank you again, Dr. Lockhart. This has been Monday Musings with RC, and I will see you next week. Same bad time, same bad, bad channel. Thanks again for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Fit Life Give, a Black-owned, queer, and trans-friendly luxury mobile spa. Fit Life Give specializes in couples and individual massage, corporate events, to spa and pamper parties all across the Chicagoland area. Massage is a form of fitness, and you need to have a fit-filled life in order to give to others. So book Fit Life Give for your next event or personal service. That's fitlifegive.biz.